Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And I do at this time invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 4 and verse 31 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4 verses 31 through 37 is our passage. That passage can be found on page 860 if you are using a church Bible. Page 860, Luke chapter 4 and verse 31. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we know that you are wise and you are sovereign and you are in control over all things. And you're so much higher than we are. Things that seem daunting to us are, are uh, trivial to you who holds the entire world in your hands. And so as we turn to your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, your word would uh, come alive in our hearts and that Jesus Christ might be magnified more than anything else in our lives, uh, magnified so highly uh, above any kind of current event or above any kind of uh, political drama, above any kind of personal issue, above any kind of anything, God, we ask that you would magnify Christ in a way that puts everything else into perspective. Would you please show to us this morning how much it is that you love us and how secure we can be in your love for us in Christ Jesus? Uh, even when things might appear to be falling apart. We ask these things for your glory, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke has presented to us uh, Jesus as both the Son of God and as at the same time the Son of Man. He is both truly human and yet truly vine, and the only one qualified to be our Lord and our Savior. And Jesus has accomplished what no other human being has ever accomplished. And that is to endure every kind of attack and every kind of assault that the devil could throw at him, to be tempted in every way that we are tempted. And yet Jesus is utterly without any kind of sin at all. He is a perfect, sinless human, the true and better Adam. And as Jesus begins his public ministry, we find that it is uh, foremost, a, a preaching and proclamation ministry. Right after he leaves the wilderness, after defeating Satan in battle, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins to teach and preach from synagogue to synagogue. The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with proclamation. Jesus' public ministry is a preaching ministry, but it is a different kind of preaching ministry, as Pastor Dave showed to us last Sunday. Because when Jesus preaches from the scriptures, not in the third person, this is what the Messiah will do and this is what God will bring about. No, Jesus preaches in the first person. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in me, verse 21. The one to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. Isaiah 61, that is me. The scriptures talk about me. The book of Isaiah is fulfilled in me. This is what Jesus preaches even in his own hometown. And the people on hearing that, they marvel because they never heard anything like that. They spoke well of Jesus. This is something entirely different. But the people of Nazareth also do not ultimately receive that teaching, nor do they receive Jesus himself as amazed as they are. They reject him. For when Jesus challenges the people of Nazareth, the very same people who were marveling, 
When Jesus challenges them, they become enraged. How dare you? And they actually try to kill him by driving him out of town with the purpose of throwing him off of a cliff because they didn't like the conclusion to his sermon. And so in the opening of Jesus' ministry in the book of Luke, we find really zero admission of who Jesus is, a zero submission to the Son of God, and there's been no recognition of, of Jesus' authority at all. But really, this is not an uncommon thing. You know, sometimes it is that we can be like Nazareth, ooing and awing when we like what we hear. But the moment we hear something we don't like, like love your enemies, even those who mistreat you, or forgive even that one person you've been harboring resentment in over decades, or deny yourself and take up a cross and follow me. Don't store treasures on earth. Don't be unequally yoked by dating unbelievers. The moment we hear something we don't like, rejection. And in those cases, it is not Jesus who is authoritative in our lives, but we who are authoritative in our own lives. I'll nod my head to you, Jesus, as long as you agree with what I want. But when you don't agree with me, I'll throw everything we have in disagreement off of a cliff because you do not have authority to make me do otherwise. That was a problem in Nazareth. That is a problem today as well. And in our text this morning and in the text next Sunday, these verses are about Jesus's authority being revealed in undeniable ways, whether people are willing to recognize it or not. Would you please look with me in verse 31? And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Jesus' authority here is present in his preaching. His word possessed authority, the text says. And that authority is so tangible that his hearers are astonished because it's not what they are used to. Mark 1.22 talks about this astonishment because it says he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There's a contrast to what the people were used to hearing and a stark difference between that and what Jesus is bringing from his pulpit. The scribes and the rabbis, they preached differently. Spent a lot of time engaging with this teacher or this rabbi. What's the most current interpretation of this rule? And it was often this engagement and, and really a conversation with this concept or that concept. Sometimes they made it really obscure so that they could come off as smart. And I think this is less about style than it is about substance. But, but Jesus' preaching had a gravity to it. And that gravity and authority is not, uh, frankly, how a lot of pulpits are. I went to one conference on our island a few years ago, and instead of a pulpit, they had to stand off to the side, and there was a couch on the stage on this side, and one of the preachers would go sit on the couch mid-sermon. And some preachers like to do that with, with the idea implicitly that we're here to learn together. It's comfortable. We attend this place to discuss this idea or that one, but the tone is utterly conversational more than it is declarative. It's casual more than it is authoritative. Let's learn together. More panels and less preaching. More dramas and skits. And why don't we have someone up here painting a picture while everyone watches? And less, thus saith the Lord. And many do want to look at novel new ideas rather than to the timeless word of God. Ooh, I like that. This is more like a TED Talk. This is a kind of communication I prefer. This is more of a humble demeanor rather than a matter-of-fact tone. Less confidence. 
and more speculation and disposition. This is what I'm drawn to. I don't like being preached to. I don't like being preached at. I, I want more than one point of view. I want several points of view than just the one point of view. You know, Jesus here, he, he's not like any contemporaries of this age or any of our age. And he not only preached the word of God as a prophet and a herald of it, but he preached the word of God as God himself. And so when he opens his mouth, there is this almighty authority behind every single one of his words. I mean, who can preach Isaiah 61? This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, in me. There's a power and potency in this kind of authority that even the religious people who've grown up hearing, preaching all of their lives, even they are amazed because this is utterly different. Now, brothers and sisters, people either love authoritative preaching or they hate it. There's really not much room for any middle ground. It's hard to be halfway. You either, after listening to a preacher like John the Baptist, you either repent for the forgiveness of sins and, and you want to be baptized or you want to throw John in jail because you don't like him telling you that what you're doing is wrong. That's exactly what happened to him. John didn't leave much room for, well, that's a nice thought, very positive, and I'm just going to get on with my day then. And it was very confrontational and it carried quite a bit of weight. Jesus doesn't leave much room either because his own hometown audience, they heard what he had to say. They tried to throw him off of a cliff. Because they didn't like the end of his sermon, even though they loved the front part of it and were amazed by it because the authority in it required a response and didn't leave much room for any kind of middle ground. And church family, it must be the same with us whenever the Word of God is open before us. Are we recognizing the authority of God's Word? Or are we hearing it and treating it as mere opinion? Are we responding to the teaching of Jesus Christ? Or are we dismissing it as, as it being optional? There's really no safe middle ground. We either recognize the place of Christ as Lord of our lives, or we say, get off your throne, Jesus, because I belong there instead. Jesus didn't leave much room for any other kind of decision. He either is who he says he is, or, or he's not. We can't be in the middle. And so Luke shows to us here, Jesus is authority present in his word and in the way that he preaches. But before we move on, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't change or alter his ministry based on immediate audience response. You know, it would have been very easy and even more pragmatic, maybe even strategic. Jesus, you've been preaching like this and a bunch of synagogues are ready. We're not getting the results we want. The crowd in Nazareth, they tried to kill you. Maybe, just maybe, we should change how you do ministry. Less preachy, perhaps. Less confrontational. Change your tone, maybe. Throw in a few more jokes here and there. Why so serious? Now, for me, as far as I know, no one has ever tried to kill me that I know of, let alone a mob of people from my own hometown. But, but for Jesus to experience all of that really violent rejection and to be dismissed wholeheartedly so quickly after a sermon, for Jesus to keep on preaching, to keep getting behind that pulpit, to proclaim the word of God, to proclaim his own word, for Jesus to continue on even in the face of rejection shows to us how much we ought to value the proclamation of the word of God, no matter what the results are. We will not always be able to judge the faithfulness and the effectiveness of a ministry purely by immediate audience response. 
Jesus keeps on proclaiming even when it seems like it's not working. He believes in the pulpit. And we have here, in addition to this, a lesson for us all that, that in the face of potential uh, discouragement, we ought to keep being faithful. And Jesus is continuing to do what he does. We, we find this godly perseverance that ought to mark his followers as well. And we can so easily lose heart, and, and understandably so. And that friend or family member that we want so badly to be saved, they aren't even interested. In fact, it's the opposite. They, they really seem quite annoyed. It makes us want to say, forget it, I quit. We can so easily lose heart, and understandably so, when, when a sin that we thought we conquered rears its ugly head back again. Forget it, I just want to quit. You can so easily lose heart when the truth that's so important to us is trampled underfoot by those who just want you to shut your trap. We so easily want to quit loving those people. God has placed in our lives those difficult people that are becoming harder and harder, especially in these recent years, to love. We so easily want to put down our cross that we're supposed to bear because living for the world just seems so much easier. It's working out for a lot of people. This cross is not working out for me. But brothers and sisters, look at your Savior how patient, how faithful, and how enduring and long-suffering. Jesus is literally going to be tossed off a cliff, and he escapes, and he doesn't go into hiding, self-protective mode. But he escapes, and then he keeps on preaching and keeps on keeping on. And life can be very difficult when we're looking at here and there and at this seemingly hopeless scenario and that one, but sometimes we just need to lift our chins and direct our eyes a little bit higher than to what is just around us so that we can look and see the magnitude of who Christ is and keep on keeping on. And that faithfulness and patience and endurance of Jesus in these very verses is great evidence and proof of how much he loves us. Look at what he goes through day in and day out, for you. Look at what he endures so that he might love you more and more. Look at his life during a short time on earth so that he might give all of himself to you. And this is evidence, again, of the kind of conduct we should continue in, even when it seems like it's not being successful at all. And so Jesus continues to preach with authority whether people recognize it or not. And in our next set of verses, we have perhaps the most unlikeliest person to recognize who Jesus is, which provides a context for another demonstration of Jesus' authority and identity. Verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We have in these verses one who finally recognizes who Jesus is. Many have heard him preach and teach and felt the gravity and weight of it, but it's actually here a man possessed by a demon who recognizes Jesus' identity and confesses his authority. Now, this is not a baby crying mid-service. This isn't a cell phone going off kind of distraction. This is someone shrieking an unclean spirit using a man's mouth to cry out at the top of the man's lungs. I mean, think about it. What if these piercing screams came out right now in like the third row? How would you respond? Chicken skin. 
And a friend of ours uh, had a mongoose problem digging up his yard, and he set out traps, and he caught one in a steel cage. I don't know if any of you guys have caught a mongoose before. He reached out to grab the handle of that cage, and the mongoose <laughs> viciously bit the bars of the cage. And my friend yanked his hand back, understandably so. And while that mongoose couldn't hurt him at all, I mean, he's still in the cage. He's vicious. And this man sitting in the synagogue listening to the authority of Jesus Christ within the very words that he's preaching is like a cornered, caged animal. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You see the plural there, us? He's not just one unclean spirit, but Jesus' appearance spells doom for all of people like us. All of the fallen angels who function as demons have you come to destroy us. And you can hear fear in these words because of Jesus' identity as the one who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan himself. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But even in that admission, there's this rage and terror within. Listen to uh, Alexander McLaren. He writes this. The presence of purity is a sharp pain to impurity. And an evil spirit is stirred to its depths when in contact with Jesus. Monstrous growths that love the dark shrivel and die in sunshine. The same presence, which is a joy to some, may be a very hell to others. It is an awful thing when the only relief is to get away from Jesus. And when the clearest recognition of his holiness only makes us the more eager to disclaim any connection with him, that is the hell of hells. And that is what I think is happening here when this unclean demon comes into the contact with the Holy One of God. It becomes a hell of hells. Get away from me. And I think it's interesting that in the entire Bible, we don't see too many references to demons or demon possessions as much as we do in these gospel accounts of Jesus' short time on earth. It says if Jesus' very appearance, his, his presence forces them out into the open, and they have to recognize the one in the room who bears all authority in heaven and on earth, and they can't stay silent. And we see that same authority over even the demonic realm who hates Jesus. They still have to bend the knee and recognize him. And we see it in how simply this demon is expelled with just a few words. This is not a long, drawn-out exorcism like in the movies. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus here demonstrates his authority over the demonic realm, and it is such that this unclean spirit has to obey him. He can't even utter another word because of Jesus' command to be silent. Whether the satanic likes it or not, it has to recognize the authority of the Son of God and the Son of Man. And we see even in this exorcism that the demon is still trying to do harm to the guy on the way out, but we also see that the demon is unsuccessful. For even when it does try in a last-ditch effort to bring him harm, no harm is actually done because Jesus has authority over it all. Matthew Henry, he writes, Whom Satan cannot destroy, he will do all the hurt he can. But this is a comfort. He can harm them no further than Christ permits. 
Nay, he shall not do them any real harm. Brothers and sisters, if we have Christ, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear if we're found in Jesus Christ. And the impact upon the people is profound. Authority and power belong to Jesus, and it belongs especially to his word. Now, the modern mind can sometimes recoil from passages like these, and, and some who even call themselves Christians, even some commentators, they're actually embarrassed by the Bible when it talks about things like demons and unclean spirits. And for whatever reason, we've been led to believe that if a demon or the devil does not make himself obvious, then they and he must not really exist. But the Bible's clear in texts like Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whether the spiritual forces of evil make themselves obvious like in this text, or whether they do not, they are very real. And I read a web article from Shelley's yesterday <clears throat> written by a missionary named David Hare. And listen to what he says as he relates this to current events. I think there's a lot of truth in it. He says, when you see people arguing over vaccines, particularly in the church, to what do you attribute the conflict? Is the problem ignorance? If so, we could solve all of these problems with just more education, right? That's how you solve the problem of ignorance. You educate. It seems clear to me that the problem is not a lack of information. If you have strife and conflict in your church because of COVID and you think the problem is people fighting people, you may have made a misdiagnosis. The problem is not fighting human beings. The problem is that we're wrestling against spiritual forces. However, if we recognize the problem as being spiritual, then the solution will also be spiritual. In that Ephesians 6 passage, Paul says that the solution to Christian people arming themselves is Christian people arming themselves with truth, righteousness, a readiness to announce the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. God is calling us to defeat conflict over vaccines with righteousness and faith. Do you believe that you can find a solution to the conflict in your church and family through spiritual means? If you have trouble believing the idea that these conflicts can be resolved through spiritual means, you might be spiritually blind. The problem is when we consider our lives to be merely material. The greatest danger for Americans today is that we're tempted to act as though the spiritual does not exist. There's no message in the Bible that the days of angels and demons are past. You know, when I hear of people on one side of our church family talking like this and the other side of our church family talking like that and both pointing the finger like the other group is a real group filled with the real idiots, you think that's just an information issue? That when the church gets divided and the body of Christ gets all arrogant and hasty and impatient and unloving with one another, you think that perhaps there might be more than what meets the eye that this is an opportunity for some type of spiritual attack. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, the idea that believers can avoid 
coming to church for a year and a half and think they're okay because of a screen when other believers worldwide are meeting underground but still coming together. But they have to do it in secret because if they get found out, they'll get jailed and even killed. While Americans will go to Costco and work and send their kids to school but avoid the gathering of the church as if that were the plague. You think that's merely because of something called COVID? And that is not some deeper agenda to keep people from the very community that is the body of Christ himself? But the spiritual don't exist, right? Even when the whispers keep going, it's okay to hate your brother and sister if they didn't get a vaccine. Or if they did, just sit at your separate tables. Just join different small groups. Faction off. Fill it with only people who agree with you and talk trash about those who don't. Keep arguing about COVID. Keep the battle right here. This is where it really lies. Throw your different studies at each other. Make sure you do it on social media for the world to see. Make sure you complain about the other side in front of the kids about those people whine and divide the church. But the devil ain't real. Their real enemy is across the pew. Now, we can't blame every sin and all of our disunity on the devil. But what could be more demonic than making a singular issue the object of your ever-present concern and the apple of your eye, the thing you want to talk about most more than Jesus Christ? The devil's strategy has always been anything I can do to make you fight each other and take your eyes off of Jesus, anything to make the church inside look like the world outside. Does Jesus Christ have authority over his church? You know, the first century church, church in Ephesus, they had people on both sides of the pew. They used to be racist against each other for generations, and they came to be part of one family. You think that's because of a series of protests? No. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Who does it? What realm? Is it physical? Is it political? No, these Christians understood Christ is way bigger than our racial differences. And I can love you like my real brother because we have Christ in common. You know, we have in the New Testament a grown man, a grown adult man choosing to be circumcised. It's not like they had nice hospitals back then. He chose to be circumcised the old school way even when he didn't have to. Why would he do that? Out of love and out of the consideration for others. You know, we have in the early church people who would readily refuse to eat meat forever if my eating meat would stumble a weaker brother or sister. Now in today's age, but they're the weak one. Why should I do anything for them? They're the weak ones. Exactly, because the spiritual reality of coming to Jesus Christ who came for the weak ones is stronger than my hunger for any kind of meat. And my issue is not that Christian and his or her ignorance. My issue is much deeper than that and more spiritual than that, that when I look to my Lord and Savior, I would rather deny myself like he denied himself, and I would rather choose to be last than to be first and love my church, even if it cost me hamburgers for years. Because a Christian wants to be like Christ and love the church 
even if it comes at great cost to themselves. You know, I think we often misdiagnose some battles as unspiritual, and then we turn on each other rather than come together and turn to Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. That's when you take up arms. That's when you try and find the angles. That's when you refuse to do anything different about your life to help the other person across the pew. We've been fighting the wrong battles. The battle's spiritual, and we need to humble ourselves, brothers and sisters. Does Jesus Christ have authority over this church? Does he have authority over you? Because in this text, he has it over even the demons. How much more should he have it over a people who claim to be his own? And when we walk in Christ and abide in Christ, the unclean realm really has no sway and is forced to remain silent. As we come to Lord's table on the second Sunday of the month, it's an ever-present reminder that we have a Savior who spent his last hours of freedom washing the dirty feet of his followers. That's Christ. We have a Savior who gives his life to die in the worst possible way that the first century could come up with. Upon the cross of shame, not for his own sin, but for our sin. He bore our burdens on his back. He didn't have to. We have a Savior who is filled with love for the people who least deserve it, and he offers not part of himself, but all of himself. My body eats. He hasn't said a little bit. He pours all of his blood to wash away our sin so that the filthy might be made clean and even the worst of us might be forgiven. That's the table. That's who we come to week in and week out. And this Jesus is not only our Savior, he is our Lord and our King and our God. And as his people, we must recognize his loving authority and live with all of our might unto his glory and not our own. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that you're so patient and so kind. We thank you that Jesus Christ does have authority, that his word is true, it holds weight. We thank you that, that Jesus even has authority over Satan himself and that entire realm. And I pray, God, that you would bring us close to you Bring us close to Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit, you'd bring us near to you and therefore near to each other that we might feast on, on Christ, be nourished by him, that our community would grow in a way that, that the world can't grow in, that there would be this utter distinction uh, between the world and us that draws them to your son. I, I pray, God, that you would give each of us patience and deep love. Give us a humility. Uh, by the Holy Spirit, again, God, open our eyes to see things that we might be blind to in our lives. Help us to love as you have loved. Help us to have joy in doing so. We want to honor and glorify you with our very beings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.